All right, well, good morning again, everybody. Good morning, everybody. There we go. All right. If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, we've been spending 2021 in John's Gospel, and we entitled our sermon series A Year of Good News because we thought we all needed to hear some good news in 2021. And so this morning, we're going to hear some good news from the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. Why don't we uh, begin by asking for the Lord's help? Let's pray. So we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, illuminate your Word, again, so that we can see wondrous things and take these living words and plant them deep within us, Lord, that they may continue that work of transforming us into the image of your dear Son, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, our text this morning is John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. John chapter 6, 1 to 15, and we'll start by reading the first four verses. So verses 1 to 4, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, so when we pick up the story again, uh, we learn it's nearing the time of the Passover feast, so we know this scene takes place in the springtime. Jesus and his disciples are traveling across the Sea of Galilee to an area just west of the northern tip of the lake. Today, this is part of the disputed Golan Heights territory. The other gospel writers inform us that Jesus and his disciples were on their way to find a quiet, secluded place in the hill country to retreat from the crowds, to rest and pray after a long day of healing and teaching. And this was the pattern of Jesus' life. He modeled for us a healthy spiritual rhythm. Pray, work, rest. Pray, work, rest. Pray, work, rest. Well, it wasn't very long before a large crowd of people have tracked him down. Uh, I guess that's what happens when you have the power to heal people. Let's keep reading with verses 5 and 6. It says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, I like to imagine in my mind that Jesus is reclining here, that he's just about to take a nap when he glances up and sees a huge crowd 
moving towards him. And it occurred to me that he could have reacted to this sight in a lot of different ways. He could have said, oh no, here they come again. I just wanted a short break. This is going to be exhausting or let's get out of here. Instead, he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? I think his sympathy was kindled by the sight of the crowd and his immediate thought is, how can we feed them, provide hospitality to them, express love to them? In fact, one detail that John does not include in his version of the story is that it's dinner time. And because Philip's a local boy from Bethsaida, Jesus looks to him and says, essentially, hey, uh, you guys have any good restaurants around here that might be able to cater this meal? But the scripture says apparently he only said this to test Philip, that he already had a plan in mind of what he was going to do. So I wondered to myself, why would he test Philip like that? Now, I don't know. The only thing I could come up with is that he might be testing Philip's faith. And what I mean by that is, Philip's been watching Jesus perform miracle after miracle, day after day. So, has he seen enough signs yet to convince him that Jesus is actually the Son of God, which means he can do anything? Well, Philip must have been staring at this massive, massive crowd and begins doing some arithmetic in his head. And it doesn't take long for the gears in his mind to start grinding to a halt. So he says to Jesus in verses 7 to 9, let's read those verses. He says, Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have, we can insert there, just a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So Andrew pipes up when he notices a young boy with five barley loaves of bread, which, by the way, that was the bread of the poor, and two small fish. So when you're thinking, what, are the, what do these fish look like? Think sardines. That's how small they were. They were probably actually pickled sardines. Well, Andrew appears to have a little faith, but he too quickly realized they aren't going very far with this large crowd. All right, let's keep reading. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated, 
as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. So Jesus tells the disciples to arrange the people, have them sit down. This is about to get interesting. John estimates that the crowd was about 5,000 men. As you may know, women and children were not included, were not normally counted, so let's call it somewhere around 15,000 people were in this crowd. In other words, this is almost the capacity of Madison Square Garden. Or in this period, this would have been roughly 5% of the entire population of the Galilee area is following Jesus around. So it says he took the five loaves, gave thanks, and then started passing out the bread, and he did the same with the fish. Verses 12 and 13, when they all When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, I I love the fact that the Bible records that Jesus was thrifty. (laughs) Reggie, did you pick up on that? Nothing wasted here. They gathered 12 baskets full of leftovers after Jesus provides here for this huge crowd in super abundance. Now, over the years, when I preach passages of Scripture that describe miracles, I always receive texts and emails saying something to the effect of, hey, Greg, you seem like a pretty reasonable guy. You like swimming around in the world of ideas, so you can't possibly believe that this actually happened. And do you really expect me to believe the story? And there have been lots of ways in which this has been rationalized over the years. My response has consistently been something along the lines of, because I am wired with an interest and appreciation for reason and rationale, logic and linear thinking, I can only arrive at one conclusion— that it did actually happen the way John described it. But, and this is important, I only say that because I am working from the starting presupposition that Jesus is God in the flesh. If you take away that belief, then I would say to you, I don't believe in any way that this should be understood literally. That there's no way that this could have happened. It would indeed be impossible. But if he is God in the flesh, who was with God in the beginning, 
creating protoplanetary nebulae, polar ring galaxies, quasars, and supernovas, as well as ions and quarks and protons and leptons and everything in between, like planets and human beings, bees and trees, then creating enough food for 5,000 people wasn't terribly taxing for him. It wasn't all that difficult. As we read through this gospel, we can't ever lose sight of the very first line. It's there for a reason. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If that is not true, then everything else in John's story breaks down, including the resurrection. And if that's not true, then we might, as all, we might all just go home, right? One of the dividing lines between us as Christians and the Jewish community is the divinity of Christ. And we're never going to agree on this point. To them, this makes Jesus delusional and blasphemous. To us, it makes him God in the flesh. And according to John, this miracle is the fourth sign that Jesus has provided to reveal his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And it is the one miracle, catch this, apart from the resurrection that is included in all four Gospels. That should be a gauge for us of just how important this event was for the disciples and the church. It's only a credible story if Jesus is indeed God incarnate. All right, let's finish. Verses 14 and 15. It says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now we know this, is, this was not the first time that God provided miraculously for his people's gastronomic needs. After the people saw this miracle, it reminded them of Moses in the desert and the way God provided his people with manna and quail. And now they're all convinced that Jesus was the prophet that Moses referred to the Messiah, so they want him now to assume the throne of Israel. But that's not the plan. And it's not time yet, so Jesus hightails it up on the mountain. Okay, so what's the lesson in this story? I can think of a few things. First, 
We learned again from this passage that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember what he says? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And so what do we see here? We see here he's all-powerful, but he's also compassionate and kind and loving and generous. Jesus is revealing God to us. And this also means that he is fully capable of providing for us and helping us walk through all the challenges of this life because nothing is impossible for him. Okay, second. The second lesson, I think, is that Jesus is still asking us as individuals and church communities, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? This was a test of Philip, and we can respond like Philip and say to ourselves, the need's too great, and resign in hopelessness. There's too much poverty. There's too much evil. There's too much hate. There's too much corruption. There's too much pain. There's too much addiction. Whatever. Or we can offer him what we have and ask him to multiply it, to use it to feed the world. I think the key lies in our faith in his ability to take something meager and make something great out of it. I thought about how the Salvation Army and William Booth have fed and cared for untold millions, often through our small offerings that we drop into that red bucket every year at Christmas time, right? He can take our meager offerings, even the broken pieces of our lives, and do something with them. Little is always much in the hands of Jesus. And maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, I don't have much to give. That's plenty. That's plenty. I don't have many gifts. That's plenty. Jesus takes what we offer to him. He blesses it. He breaks it open. Multiplies it to care for the world. Let me finish with a story. Richard Rohr um, tells this story of receiving a letter from a man he had met only once, and it was decades prior. And this man wanted to visit him at his home in New Mexico. He wrote to him and said, what you said to me changed my life. He said, I'd like to come and say thank you to you. Richard wondered what he had said. He couldn't recall all those years ago. The man drove a great distance, and 
When he arrived, Richard escorted this now middle-aged man into his parlor. He said, when I was in my 20s, I was in a crisis and I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. And do you remember what you said to me? And Richard says, I don't. (laughs) You said, you do not need to know. Every time I got confused, I reminded myself of that. And he said, that phrase allowed me to trust in God with my business, with my relationships, with my marriage. Richard laughed, he says, when he told me that story. He says, I don't even remember saying that. But then he finishes by saying, I realize God can take any small offering that we're willing to make. A kind word. A brief visit to the hospital. A quick apology. A short thank you note or email. A smile. He can take those little things and multiply them and offer life. Who knows what God can do when we offer him our lives? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for your word and for the reminder of who you are and help us to live lives of faith, trusting that all things are possible with you and help us as well in our weakness, Lord, to offer you the meager parts of ourselves. Take them, Lord, break them open, multiply them and use them to bring new life and love to your world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.